So if you want, I'll just give you it. It was Hurricane Sandy. My lease was so bad. You don't take a successful business and then try to move it. God can take that bad spot and he can make it way better than you could ever, ever imagine. Hey everyone, Dave Men's Laundromat Millionaire here in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm back today for another wonderful episode of Laundromat Millionaire Business Podcast. I'm here with my amazing, beautiful wife, Carla, and we have a super exciting guest for you today. So we are excited to get started with him today. Carla, do you want to introduce our guest? Uh, yes, definitely, Dave. I am excited to introduce our guest today. He is a laundromat owner in the Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. Um, his name is Charles Measley. Charles is the proud owner of two laundromats in the Jersey Shore area of New Jersey. He entered the industry in 2012 by acquiring a rundown laundromat near his home. And only a few months later, that business was destroyed by Hurricane Sandy. Charles relied on his faith in God and rebuilt his business into a multi-store chain, along with a robust laundry pickup and delivery service under the name of Happy Nest. He has just recently built a brand new laundromat from scratch, and we are excited to hear all about his journey. So welcome, Charles. We're so happy to have you here with us today. How are you guys? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. We hear that your claim to fame is you're good friends with Snooki from the show <laughs> Jersey Store. Is that a true story? I, I can't share that. Publicly. I cannot That's confirm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, don't know anything about that. <laughs> I know. I know you New Jersey people love that claim to fame of the Jersey Shore well, show. See, so I figured I, I would went, just. Get, I figured I'd just get that out of the way, way right from the start. I went to high school <laughs> in uh, in Belmar, where they did like half of the re the recording for that show. Really? So it was like always like oh yeah oh there they are again and doing this and that. So it was. Uh, you know, it was something always interesting to kind of watch and hear and see and all that. I'm wow. sure it was chaotic with all the film crews and oh, yeah. people. So yeah, they, they, they were, were literally filming around. They were literally filming when you were in school. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yeah. Wow. No so, kidding. That so is crazy. Yeah, it was it was like basically the school was maybe like only a few blocks from the beach and basically kind of like the where where I live is like it says where the Jersey sewer starts. So it basically starts in the Atlantic Islands and then it goes uh, kind of all the way down uh, to Atlantic City. Uh, wow. And most of it was filmed right over in like uh, the Delmar area, the seaside area. And it's kind of, you know, everyone, everyone around here hated it. Uh, <laughs> that's how everyone outside of New Jersey thought people from New Jersey were. Gotcha. People from New York. You're not even from New Jersey. <laughs> oh, are they all really from New York? Most of them are from New York. Yeah. Now, oh, wow. since they moved to New Jersey, but uh, but uh, they all basically are from New York for the most part. Wow. So they built this New Jersey stereotype, and they're not even true New Jerseyans. <laughs> yeah. That is so wrong. And that is why people <laughs> from Jersey Shore hate that show. <laughs> <laughs> all right enough about snooki let's get into laundromats people that's a lot more exciting at least for me and maybe charles and probably and not. that's probably it <laughs> probably probably not carla 
All right. So listen, what we usually have our guests do is just give us a little bit of their backstory and their their upbringing as a child. Just a few minutes, because we definitely want to get into your journey and all the crazy adversity that you've been through and stuff. But I know you told me that your your childhood even had some pretty crazy adversity associated with that. So yeah, tell us about that. Tell us about your your upbringing and your birth and what you went through and things like that, if you don't mind. Yeah, no. So uh, when I was born, I was born very, very premature. And basically when I was born, the nurses and everyone didn't really think I was going to make it. So I was in my little incubators. They had oxygen and all, all that stuff. And they kind of dug me the miracle baby uh, at the hospital. Uh, <laughs> I guess I survived. Um, and, uh, you know, I would set home like a few months later after, you know, I guess I grew and mature there, but like I weighed, I think it was less than a bag of flour uh, is what I weighed. So I was very, I was very, very tiny. How many uh, weeks were you in the womb before you were born? I was born, I think like maybe three months ahead of time. Oh, wow. Um, so I guess I just wanted so to get months. out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wow. And we've all been through adversity, some more than others. Uh, but they don't usually, the adversity doesn't usually start in the womb um, or at yeah. birth for most of us. So, <laughs> so um, have you had any ongoing health issues or anything like that that you had to deal with growing up and even still today? I mean, like when I was like young and even today, like my big thing was like my eyes were always bad. Um, and then let's say over the past few years, um, I ended up being diagnosed with advanced glaucoma and basically I'm pretty much half blind or meaning this eye is, I have like 10% vision and wow. my uh, left eye is, is pretty much okay. So, you know, when I go to see, it's basically almost tunnel vision mm -hmm. is kind of how it is. Um, so it's very like narrow focus. So if I go into a room, you know, even though I know you, I, and you think I'm looking at you, I may not even see you just because I have to be directly focused at you in order to recognize you and see you because outside of that, that basically that tunnel port vision, it's all, um, it's all blur. Yeah. Uh, and basically you don't know what like glaucoma is. It's a, uh, there's pressure that builds up in your eye mm -hmm. and it crushes the optic nerve mm -hmm. um, in the back of the eye. And basically the damage that's done is is permanent and the only thing they do now basically is they can stop it from getting worse and the big thing is just to be you know uh treated early so if you go to regular eye exams you know just make sure they're doing a test for glaucoma they'll normally like do like a little tap on your eye uh to check the pressure is what they do it takes like two minutes and isn't uh, that the one where they like blow the air at your eye no you feel a small puff of air in each eye. Uh, what? what? <laughs> a small puff of air. Now, come on! <laughs> Here we go. All right. One, two, three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're sorry? All right. I'm going to stay in here this time. Okay. Like the little puffs yep. of air? Yep. So the yeah. air puff is like the older method of, of doing it. And mm -hmm. then now they do like a, what they call like a tap. It's like a little blue it looks like a blue light and they mm -hmm. just literally poke your eye real fast. <laughs> and, uh, it gives you like a, a pressure reading, like you're checking the, 
the pressure of your car tire. Um, <laughs> one of the things, you don't even know that you have it if you have it. And that's why it's a problem. Yeah. It's basically silent and you don't realize it until it's far advanced in, mm-hmm. in the stages that it has. Gotcha. So, so that's pretty debilitating for you. Yeah. You know, it was kind of weird. Cause like in the, let's say the beginning of it, like when I was first told about it, I was like, ah, you know, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Like I, I still see I'm fine. Blah, blah, blah. But then I guess as it sinks in, then it's like, okay, this is actually, yeah, this is kind of a big deal. And then you understand the magnitude of, you know, what it is and that this is more of a permanent nature. You can't just look to yourself. You have to look, you know, to your faith and who you believe in in order to get you through that. Because if you just keep focused on you, then you're going to go down and be depressed and have a little faith party. I think that's good advice for anybody facing anything Mm -hmm. is the more you just focus on yourself, the worse it gets, but really like relying on your faith, looking outside of yourself, you know, there's always other people that are in way worse conditions that could use your help instead of you exactly. having a pity party for yourself. You know? <laughs> yep. Kudos to you for looking at it that way, Charles. Cause I mean, I've known you for a few years now. Uh, we've known you for a few years now. And uh, the reality is, I mean, you're, you're one of the most happy, happy go lucky guys that I know. Um, anytime I'm around you, whether it's on the phone or uh, in person at the clean show or something like that, I mean, you're always um, high energy and you're always happy and just kind of enjoying life. So you clearly have a great perspective on life despite having, Thank you. Um, you know, that condition. So anyway, good for you. So thanks for sharing that with us. You're so right. back to your upbringing. So you grew up in the Jersey shore kind of area, yep. uh, went to high school there. What'd you do after high school? Well, my mother wanted me to go to college. Uh, so <laughs> I, I didn't so, really want to apply anywhere or really go anywhere uh, at first. Um, Cause I didn't know what I wanted to be or do and in my mind it's like all right you have everyone spending all this money uh, but i first went to just a local community college because again i didn't really know what i wanted to do i like business and i really like politics and all of that so those were kind of my two passions so when i was at uh, this community college i studied a little bit of both and i ended up going to Ryder university um maybe like three years later because uh, I had a really good political science program and they had a, a degree program which basically mixed uh, business communication with politics. I did that for another three years. So I, I did a six-year uh, college plan instead of the four. Uh, and, you know, I paced myself and during that, you know, I did, I ran campaigns and before laundry, besides the local consulting stuff, I had like a little ice cream business. So I had these little trikes where we would go onto the boardwalk. I had like four of them. So we would do parties, be stationed on the boardwalk and sell like ice cream and Italian ice out of that. So it wasn't just you, you had four of them. So you had employees and everything. You had an ice cream empire. Yeah, I had, it was sweet. Oh, literally. Oh, Oh, wow. (laughs) Nice. Literally. Literally. So I had, uh, I had my, my cousin, I had my sister and then some of my friends as my first, uh, as my first employees. So you did that. Um, so you, so you went to school for six years did your, how long did you do your ice cream business? So I started that basically when I uh, graduated high school, 
Uh, oh, so okay. that was in like uh, 2008. And then uh, in 2012, I was still doing the ice cream thing. And where we lived, there was a little tiny rundown, what we'll call zombie mat uh, of a store. And there was a little for sale sign in the window. So me and my mother called the number and the guy is actually trying to sell the building. And somehow we were just interested in the laundromat. And then he called us a few days later and said, listen, it doesn't really make that much. It was my father's place. I hate it. So if you want, I'll just give you it. And you pay me, you know, this rent. And we said, you know what? Well, he's giving it to us. We actually didn't even have to sign a lease at the time, which now that's actually a little silly. But <laughs> we just said, all right, fine, we'll take it. And, you know, it was filthy, 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 filthy. So literally for two months, it was just cleaning like dirt off of everything, uh, doing some fresh paint and just making the place look good. It was fully uh, unattended. There was one employee that I actually never, never, ever met in person. Uh, he came uh, late at night just to clean the place and get it all tidied up and stuff like that. And then about maybe like six months after that, uh, there was Hurricane Sandy. And where the store was was in Seabright. And Seabright is basically uh, almost like a barrier island. So you have the ocean on this side and a river on this side. And oh, goodness. so this store was there for like 40 years and it never, never had a problem. There was floods and sea right all the time. Mm -hmm. So I put tape on the windows, sandbags and all that stuff to get ready for the storm. And, you know, it was bigger than what any of us thought at the time. And it literally just, you know, washed everything out of the place. You know, machines were thrown across knocked over it was a total total disaster uh, uh and the insurance that i had uh, wasn't flood insurance uh it was everything but flood insurance uh, so they didn't do anything and at that point it was basically all right well if we're going to rebuild it it's really not worth rebuilding it because you're only at the end of the day we were getting maybe like you know 1200 bucks uh, a month from it. And at that point, all right, I'm, it, it doesn't make financial sense to redo it. So we just went our separate ways. Um, and that space is like a restaurant now. But I thought, you know, this is something I like doing. So I started uh, actually reading like the forums online on the CLA and just reading every single thing on there. I read conversations. And so this would have been in 2012, 2013? Yep. Okay. Yep, 2000, this is 2012, 2013. Okay. And after reading and learning more and all that, I said, you know what? I, I do kind of want to be in this business and in this industry. And I had a broker that was helping me with that. And they weren't very good. Uh, literally every deal I had, either fell apart or it didn't work out. And that was almost a blessing in that sense mm -hmm. because where um, we were renting at the time, the washer room. So, oh, this is great. Now I get to go to a laundromat. And, <laughs> and I, so, you know, I'm on Google. And I'm like, oh, this one is like uh, 
the nicest one. And in fact, it's pretty close to where we are. So we'll, we'll go watch here. Um, and everything there was on a car, which was like amazing compared to the quarters that I had at my little tiny store. And uh, when we were there, we happened to run into the general manager of the store. And I just, I just told him my story and, you know, what happened and what I was doing. And then he introduced me to the owner um, and he was an older gentleman and, and we met and eventually I, you know, I ran into the owner another time and we exchanged numbers and he said, you know, I know I'm not interested in selling, but if you want to, you know, get lunch and just talk about business and all that, um, you know, we can do that. So maybe after six months of just talking to him, um, he decided to say, you know, I'll sell you. And I'll sell you my store if you're really interested in it. Um, and that basically started my journey as to my first, what I'll call my first real store. Um, <laughs> it was. Uh, Can I ask you a question, yeah, Charles? Sure. What, what, and, and you may not know the answer to this. I'm just curious, and I suspect our audience is curious. So you spent six months with this gentleman, kind of getting to know him and, and learning the yeah. industry or the business from him in some yeah. level during that whole time, were you trying to convince him to sell you the store or did you really accept so, his words of, I don't want to sell. And then all of a sudden he just one day flipped a switch and changed his mind. Was that strategic on your part? So I knew he didn't want to sell it. Um, but in my heart, I wanted him to sell it. It's like, mm -hmm. I thought this store was perfect. I, okay. This is great. This is what I want. Um, and at the same time, I said, you know what, even if I, don't make a deal with him. Uh, I'm learning a lot from him. Sure. Uh, I was uh, 23 at this point, and he was 85 years old. But you no, know, we would just go, we would have lunch, and we just ask friends because I was still looking for other stores um, in the area. So I would show him deals that I would be looking at and get his thoughts and stuff like that. And then he said, you know what? Like, I'm 85. I don't, you know, want to do this forever. So we came up with a price on that, and I wanted to go get funding. And if you know, if you're just getting into this space, getting funding for a laundry for whatever reason is very hard to do through the traditional banking methods. Um, basically, all the banks I went to said, "Oh, we don't do funding for dry cleaning." Well, this isn't a dry cleaner. This is, <laughs> this is a laundromat. It's different. Like, oh, no, 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 we don't, we, we, we don't do that. Like, oh, yeah. okay. And after trying to get funding and not being able to, he basically ended up agreeing to be the bank and he gave me a really great interest rate on it. I, I said, you know what, this is, this is a great deal. And I ended up doing it. Um, I was still going back and forth from Ryder University at the time, which was about like 45 minutes an hour from where I lived and where the store was. Um, so you were still in college. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh wow. So I I took over the store in in March of fourteen, and then I graduated in uh, May of of that year. Um, wow. And so what was that? What was that store like? Was it also a zombie mat, or was it in no more, no no more this, this, was, this was perfect. This was it like was. Uh, it was it was three thousand five hundred square feet. Okay. Um, it was an all hard store, which in this area 
at the time, there's only there was only one other store that had cards. Uh, and, and by card, and by card, you mean loyalty card, prepaid cards? Exactly, loyalty okay. card. So it was um, an all Dexter store, and uh, Dexter had a thing called Easy Card at the time. Yeah. So um, that's what the store ran on, um, and this store was built in like 2006. So at the time, they had actually a group or bank of washers that were 200G machines. Um, and the rest of the store was 100G machines. It was uh, all tiled floor, two bathrooms. Uh, it was a drop shop for dry cleaning. The wash and fold business was pretty substantial uh, at that store. Um, at the time when I, when I took it over, it was around maybe like uh, 8,000 a month of revenue we were doing just from uh, the wash and fold. Uh, and, uh, and the self-service end was very busy as well. Do you remember how you and the previous owner um, came to this number? Was it was it based on a 3-4x multiple of net operating income? Was it just a number he pulled out of the sky and you had no idea? Do you remember that at all? Yeah, yeah. So basically, it was kind of bad negotiating at my part. I was like, this is a pretty nice store. And I said, oh, yeah, based off of, you know, what you told me and stuff, like, oh, it should be... Uh, I think I gave him like a like four and a half times multiple on it, and off of you know the numbers that we've all talked about, mm -hmm. and he said, "Okay, there we go." So, uh, so he didn't even have an asking price. You were just having a conversation with someone that was probably somewhat of a friend or mentor at this point, and yeah. he wasn't sure what it was worth. Correct. Yep. And so he, what did he just say? Well, make me an offer. <laughs> I basically, you know, cause he knew I wanted to buy it. And then one day when we were talking like whatever valuing another store, he said, well, what would you value, value my store at? And then I said, well, I would value this and I would give you, you know, this. And he said, all right, well then let's do that. I'll sell it to you. Gotcha. Uh, and you were like in the building where like you would be paying him rent or. So he built the store from the ground up. Him. He had a business partner originally, and when they first opened the store, they had an opportunity to buy the building, which in hindsight, you really should have did. There was someone who came in and they bought, bought the building asking price, and now he had a landlord that he wasn't familiar with, and uh, basically his business partner was in charge of the lease. And the lease was probably like this thick oh, and goodness. it was, you know, outrageous for what it was. Um, and the big thing is whenever you're doing any commercial lease, you have to look at the cam and you have to look at the increases that happen um, in it because you have your base rent and that price could be fine and that could be fair, but with whatever the increases are and, particularly how the cam is structured, it could make or break you. Um, can, you can you explain to our audience what you mean by cam and what that represents? Sure, sure. So cam is basically common area charges. So it could be something as simple as just the property taxes, or it could be as elaborate as snow removal, insurance, the grass, the painting of the building, repairing the outside of the building. Um, the sidewalks, the parking lots, 
right? So if they go to repave the parking lots, for an example, you know, you could be on the hook for part of that cost, depending how big your store is in that building or strip center. So basically, uh, the person who bought the building despised uh, the owner that I bought it from. During the housing crash, he tried to uh, basically force, force a renegotiation of the lease. So what him and his business partner decided to do was, you know, we've asked her to lower the rent. The landlord didn't want to do it. So they said, all right, we're going to bankruptcy and we're not going to pay them. And then they'll be forced to um, renegotiate the rent. Well, it didn't work out for them. They got an eviction notice on the door and basically totally destroyed uh, the relationship that he had with this new landlord. Um, And from that point on, it was just a back and forth of how can I make your life harder? kind of situation. And again, when your lease is this thick, the landlord has the power to basically make your life hell uh, in a way. Um, So for example, he got an $8,000 snow bill because the landlord didn't care. She wasn't paying for it. She found the most expensive person to remove the snow um, and things like that. So eventually after all of the garbage and back and forth was sorted between them one thing that came out was he did get a slight break in rent it was capped at um a price and basically with me taking over the lease now all of a sudden what i thought i was paying in rent increased by uh, about twenty five hundred dollars a month which led which was led to me going back to him and we knocked a big chunk off of that sales price because now the cash flow isn't what it what we both thought it was. Now it's so, something totally so, different. So was that not disclosed in the numbers that you and him saw? I yeah, so when we were going over the numbers, basically uh, he was paying, let's say it was ten thousand dollars a month, all all in. And According to the actual lease, it should have been uh, like 12000 and, and change on it. Um, so when I had my first conversation with the landlord, this was basically the first thing that she brought up uh, with me was, you know, the rent is actually this because he has this break that I gave him, but he has to pay back the rent that he didn't pay during his time there. Mm. So basically she clawed back what he should have been paying from him. And unfortunately for him, that came from the sale of the business. I think this is a great lesson for those that are either in the industry or maybe even looking to get in the industry or maybe even other businesses, to be honest, is to understand how powerful a lease is and how powerful it is to have you know, experts, attorneys, whatever you want to call them, reviewing these things, especially when they're this thick. But I've, yeah. I've seen people get caught off guard by 20 page leases. Um, yeah. and, and just making sure you understand the rent is this, but this is not the same as renting an apartment. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't exactly. 700 bucks exactly. a month and you get a two bedroom, one bath apartment. That's not yeah. how this works. There's all kinds of things that are added on 
And in your case, a lot of them are, you know, in a lot of leases, they're capped and you can negotiate caps and things like that. In your case, it sounds like there really was no ceiling. So they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Exactly. So that cam section is basically where they could say, hey, we're going to spend, you know, 20 grand on a parking lot. And now if you have to pay us your portion this year um, is basically how the lease was structured. Like you said, there has to be some physical dollar limit. And more importantly, that cam should only be able to increase so much each year, just like whatever the increases are in the rent. So right. in that bad lease, the rent itself increased 3% every year. Now, if you sign a lease in the height of a housing and real estate market, and now you're adding 3%, 3%, 3%, now all of a sudden, it's, it's a crazy, crazy number. I took over the store, like I said, that March, and you know, I didn't really change anything, just let, it, let the status quo be. Again, I didn't know what I didn't know, and the business began to decline. So come, let's say, November or December of that year, now all of a sudden, now instead of being cash flow positive, now cash flow negative, and I don't have a lot of reserve. I only have a little bit. I'm putting back in the little bit that I have uh, to keep it going. Uh, and luckily, I stopped the bleeding. And I'm looking at right, what's the best way to, you know, get revenue, get people in here, right? So at first, I said, all right, self-service. All right. I said, all right, I want to do um, promotions on these machines and this and that. And maybe it would change the numbers a little bit. What can I do? Um, can you give us an I, idea? Can you give us an idea of roughly how much, let's say a week or a month, however you want to explain it to us that the revenue that was, that you were trying to, that you were doing at the time. Yeah. So, um, when I, when I first, uh, took over the store, uh, all in, we were probably doing, um, around like 35,000 a month. On. Okay which is, you know, it is a good number. But again, sure. when your rent is way, way out of whack, now, now you're at a disadvantage because basically I think the rule of thumb is, you know, you want to have, you know, no more than 30% be your rent and your debt service. Do you and have any I idea did. why was business dropping off? Um, I wasn't focused on it enough really because I was doing political stuff. I was doing school. I let people that I thought knew what they were doing in charge instead of me actually overseeing and doing my job as an owner on it. You know, cleanliness went down uh, of the store itself. Uh, and then the quality of the washing fold went down um, as well. So once you then see these problems and realize it, you have to fix it because you have to put yourself in your customer's position and you want to make it as welcoming and seeing everything you can see, not from your perspective, but from the eyes of your customer. Because at the end of the day, they're who you're working for. You know, the boss isn't me or you, the boss is really the customer. Without them, we're all fired and we all don't have a job. Um, <laughs> And that, I think, is the mindset that you kind of have to have, um, you know, when you're viewing your business 
um, or any opportunity that you're looking at. How does the customer see it? Um, and how do I get rid of the problems that they face um, when they are coming to my store? So you went in there and you went into your stores, you kind of looked at it from a customer perspective and realized you needed to work on the cleanliness. You needed to work on your employees, getting employees and managing your employees maybe more closely to make sure they were doing a consistent job. And then you also tried to look into some promotions that you just did kind of on your own. Yeah, because I would say that the biggest biggest thing uh, I think is, you know, your employees, are really a reflection of of you right so i forget i forget who who said it but like your investment in this store whether however much it is let's say you have half a million dollars in this store you're leaving a half a million dollars in the hands of your poorest trained employee and you're trusting them with that money whether you think that or not they're now in this position where they're overseeing this huge investment that you have um, in this laundry. And if you don't take the time to train them and work with them, then you're leaving your investment in the hands of however lowly paid or lowly trained that employee is. I think that's a great point, Charles, because in a lot of my conversations, you know, people come to me and they say, what should I do? What should I do regarding marketing and promotions? And if I, if I try to do it, if I remember, I always tell them, well, the first thing, let's talk about your store, especially if it's a coaching client or something like that. Yeah. Let's make sure that all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted for what I call the foundational part of the business, yeah. um, you know, getting the store clean. And so you, you recognize that that wasn't happening. And so you weren't promoting your store, but you knew you needed to grow your business. And so you recognize yeah. that you took the accountability and said, hey, this is my baby this is my business. This is my bad. And I need to own this. I need to go do something about it. So walk us through the process of how you went, how you, you know, turned, turned that around. And then what I'm curious too, like what type of marketing and promotions did you find work to help you grow the business? Sure. So like the one kind of, I guess my, my breaking point was um, there was a washing machine where someone, I don't know, they washed like a dog bed or whatever. Right. And the person who was responsible for cleaning took a sticky note and wrote me to clean this machine put it on the machine for someone else to do and once i saw that i said you know what this is ridiculous i said you know what (laughs) you you stick at your job this is not what you do you you call out half the time you're fired you're done i'm gonna work here until i find someone else who i actually like (laughs) so that was so that was your breaking point which i think we all have when we enter that yeah i was like I'm like, it needs to be clean. Your job title is cleaner. What, what, what do you mean it needs to be clean? Um, so at that point, uh, after I got my, let's say my house in, in order. So I started, you know, posting stuff on, on Facebook. I started doing little ads. Initially I did like, you know, self-service related things and stuff like that. And then I began focusing on just, hey, drop off your stuff, drop off your clothes, drop off your clothes. When I bought the store, they they also had a website at the time, which was looked like it was made in probably 1993. Uh, it was bad. So I redid the website on WordPress 
And uh, at that point, just started promoting basically, hey, this is who we are. You know, uh, one big thing I did was, you know, it, leave a review. You know, I would leave little cards in our drop-off orders uh, for people to leave a review. Um, I would do, uh, I guess, like a giveaway. So I would have people say, hey, you leave a positive review on one of these sites. And, you know, if you do, we're going to pick someone to get, uh, you know, a $50 gift card for a store. Uh, so you have to build a reputation of your business online. That's where people are going to look and, and see. You know, we always did pick up and delivery. The owner before me, uh, I think, was really ahead of his time. He had like a shuttle bus when he first opened up where he would shuttle people from apartment complexes to the store, to like uh, the food store across the street. He had pick up and delivery with laundry. Um, and I think basically he was ahead of his time in that, you know, he didn't have the technology that we had today where we can go on our smartphone, one, two, three, click. And now I can schedule a pickup um, on a website to get my clothes picked up. Uh, so when I remade that website, I made a little little contact page for people to click to do deliveries um, because I kind of hit a maximum of, hey, there's only so many people are going to bring me clothes to my store. The rest, I'm going to have to go and get. Uh, and basically all this was from me having a really bad lease, you know, pushing all these things to their best potential in order to outgrow my my problem. Um, you were desperate. Was, I mean, you were desperate, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're looking for yeah. any income stream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this wasn't, this wasn't, I'm, I'm successful and I want to be more successful or ambitious. This is like, I'm trying to survive. Exactly. Exactly. I want to, I want to just push pause real quick. If I could, Charles, yeah. just point out to people, first of all, we appreciate you being so transparent because, you know, we can all learn from our successes, but we can learn usually more from each other's, right. you know, failures. Um, and failure is a lot of times a temporary thing. You've obviously learned your lessons from these things, but it's no secret in the industry, but I just want to call note to it right now. One of the few things in this industry that you is almost impossible to overcome is a bad lease. Because the problem with a bad lease is it gets badder. Yep. I'm pretty Batter sure that's not a word. I know. I works. did that on purpose. It I was going to say <laughs> <laughs> it gets badder and badder and badder. <laughs> uh, the one thing about a bad lease is it gets worse. I actually did that on intentionally. Uh, <laughs> sure. But anyway, and the reason for it is you mentioned it a minute ago, it compounds, right? One thing about exactly. a lease is if it's bad right now, you're not going to get 3% off next year. <laughs> That's not how this works, but you probably will have an increase of one, two, three percent next year and the year after and the year after. And in a lot of cases, the property owner, while they should care about your business and your health because that affects their tenant, they usually don't usually don't care if they figure if you go belly up, you go bankrupt, you move out, somebody else will come in and take over. They'll make them pay the same rent and they don't care if you pay it or Carla pays it or I pay it. It doesn't matter to them. Somebody's going to, they're determined that somebody's going to pay them that rent. And a lot of times that's how, you know, laundromats have the negative connotation associated with it that we do is because it's, it's, it's not common for people to react to adversity like you're experiencing in a bad lease the way that you did. 
and I suspect you know that. I don't know if you did at the time, but you probably you probably do now. That's it's not common to say, well, I'm going to take responsibility and accountability for this, and I'm going to go try to find, I'm going to go beat the streets and find new revenue streams and try to increase my prices, increase my value proposition. Instead, a lot of times what happens is people just throw up their hands and give up. And they just say, well, I'm not paying any attention to that business because I'm not making any money anyways. What do I care if it goes out of business? And then you basically have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of, Absolutely. Well, now you're not involved. Now it's getting worse and worse. And then on top of that, your lease is getting worse and worse. And now you have a total uh, disaster. Yeah. Know? And that's how people understandably give up is they don't, you know, I don't know if they don't realize that there's another option or, you know, everybody's different, I suppose. But my point is I appreciate you bringing that to people's attention because location, parking and a bad lease, meaning bad location, bad parking and a bad lease are three of the few things in this industry that I, I never say never uh, are very, very difficult to overcome. Yeah. If you can find leverage on your commercial property owner, you can renegotiate a bad lease, but it's when you're a, when you're a, a fixed business, like a laundromat, you can't exactly move across the street very easily. And so a lot of times what ends up happening is we just throw our hands up and give up. The interesting thing is, and the thing I want to hear about is I've been saying that for years. The one thing that's very difficult to do is move a laundromat. And I know that's what you did. So I want to hear about this. And what was your thought process as you go through yeah, this? Because yeah. this is, you know, this, this is very rare. And I think that our audience is probably sitting forward in their chairs a little bit right now, pretty interested to hear this story because I suspect there's other people out there. I know there's other yeah. people out there that are in bad leases that are trying to figure it out. And one thing we always say is, you know, well, it's really difficult to move a laundromat or, or a lot of times impossible. So walk so us through that process. <laughs> yeah. So um, as time goes on, you know, we're still growing and the store uh, is still, you know, netting more, which is great. But again, our problems are still the lease. So I realized, you know what, this is like, I have a few more years left here. You know, I want to renew. I want to have a better lease. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, so a distributor that I knew, he brought us a deal that was um, actually like two miles away. And it was a store that was another zombie mat. It was basically abandoned. The landlord tried to run it. He ran it to the ground. Then the landlord tried to sell it. Couldn't get anything for it. So basically it was, we're giving you this store. You have to rent it but everything needs to be gutted. So um, me and my father basically went into that together. My father's an architect. So we redesigned that store, got that open. And that was our second our second store. Again, that was great because we, I learned from my first bad lease and we got a, a decent lease on the second store. So we have now that second store up and running. Um, and that second store is doing great. And now, fast forward to where our main store is, the lease basically ends in about two years. So I'm looking at what either A, I stay or I close shop and maybe just do everything, my pickup and delivery stuff out of our Neptune store, um, which is our second store. Um, or do I move somewhere else? right in my same area. So I'm looking, I'm looking and I say, all right, I got um, a good attorney from, uh, actually that works with Eastern Funding. I asked Eastern Funding, can you recommend me a good, a good attorney that does, you know, leases on laundromats? So I gave him my lease. 
he looked over it and surprise, it was really bad. Uh, but uh, <laughs> And you looked at that attorney and said, you had to go to law school to figure that out. <laughs> so, so basically we looked at it like, all right, we can't really break it. So we're not breaking it. Um, and then how do we exit in a peaceful way? And how can we exit? What can we take out of the store without having a problem um, legally um, later on? I had, uh, you know, Brian Grill write me a nice letter of uh, basically he was going to give me funding to remodel uh, this store in Ocean Township. So if I was going to stay there, you know, I needed to put in new washers. I needed to do a new card system and I needed to do some improvements to the store itself. So I had Brian write this nice letter. I explained to the landlord that I want to stay here a very long time. Uh, I have funding lined up, but in order for this funding, I need to have a new lease. Uh, I would like to do another uh, 10 year lease with a 10 year option. Um, and I want to give you good income for, you know, going forward, but I need the rent to be a fair market rent. Now, at this point, I was paying $14,000 a month, uh, which is basically double uh, what the market rent was. So basically, the answer was no. Uh, if you want more time, I'll gladly give you another 10 years, but the lease stays what it is. I showed comps of, hey, this is what these are renting for, but nothing, nothing, they nothing they had you stuck And they wanted to keep it that way at least two more years. <laughs> yep. And at that point, I went, okay, so I'm not staying here. Now I have in my head, I have to get out. I have, I, I have a hard deadline. So I'm looking around uh, and there was a building, maybe like 200 yards down from where I was and it was for sale. Okay, great. I can, I can buy this building. Uh, You're speaking my language, Charles. You're speaking I'll, my I'll, language. Uh, I'll put a store here. This is fantastic. And that building that I wanted to buy, someone else bought it. So I'm like, yeah. oh, great. So now I'm looking at this building because this person is remodeling the whole outside of the building. They're doing all this work to it. And it, they're basically doing a better job at it than what I would do myself. So uh, they had a sign, you know, space for rent, called them. We were able to get a really good lease. And the, mark, the, the price per square foot was fair and good. But more importantly, that cam structure was controlled. Um, it had a cap of how, what, what percentage rate that it could grow each year. Um, and it had a dollar amount cap on it as well. So that way, if there was some crazy thing happening, I'm not being screwed with it, um, which was crucial on it. And I got an option to buy the building um, and stuff like that. So it worked out very good as far as that lease goes. Did you achieve your goal of roughly cutting your rent in half? Oh, yeah. It was, it was less than half. Now, the one less thing that half. was slightly worse is I basically gave up about uh, 400, 500 square feet of, of space, uh, oh. which was now the tricky part of designing uh, this new space. Um, but at this point, once I have my signed lease of, hey, this is where I'm going, my time of where I would have to execute my um, 
remainder options at my current or my former store had passed, if I was renewing, I had to, I had to give them about, uh, I think it was like a six month or nine month notice uh, if I was taking that option or not. So I didn't, I didn't give them the, the renewal on it because I wasn't, wasn't staying. So we eventually sat down with that former landlord and basically came up with an exit plan, which is, you know, I'm going to stay to the end of my term, which was the middle of 2020. And, you know, I want to take my stuff out of the store and, you know, give it back to you, uh, you know, the way it should be. Uh, so at that point, we're starting construction to build this new store and, you know, starting that process, we get the electric roughed in, we're starting the plumbing, getting that roughed in. Now, I remodeled the store. I never did anything from the ground up. So getting utilities in there and all that is a whole nother world. Gas was easy. The electric and the water was was torture. And now all of a sudden come, you know, uh, the end of February of 2020, there's this talk of this coronavirus thing happening over in China. And then come March, now everything's being shut down. I don't know if I can have this store open in time because I was aiming to have this place open in June because that's when my lease ends. So I have to, I have to be out. So now my stress level is, you know, through the roof because I have no idea what's going on. You know, no one did. I literally, no one did. <laughs> and not yeah, only that, it's it was totally out of your control. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you can just hustle and make it happen, work lots of hours. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, I don't know plumbing. I have to have inspectors come who aren't coming to inspect. Right. Um, and so how much did that slow this process down? Like, what happened? You know, we ended up uh, getting the store open um, in August. So we were delayed, uh, you know, maybe about two months mm-hmm. by it. Did you have any trouble getting all of your machines out of your old location in time? What ended up happening was, you know, we ended up doing a month to month um, at our old store, um, which was, you know, a weight off my shoulder. I'm going to be thrown out of here now. I don't know what I'm going to do. So they allowed us to stay month to month. I worked with actually, so the, uh, in the previous clean show in New Orleans, I met with uh, Scott from Triad Laundry. Uh, he's actually, he's in Ohio too. Just to clarify for people, and correct me if I'm wrong, just to clarify, Triad Laundry is a, um, I don't know if they're an actual new equipment distributor, but I do know that they buy, refurbish, and sell used equipment. So you correct. were looking, you were speaking with them regarding what was the value of your old equipment at your old location, what could you get for that, and would they be interested in buying it? That's what you're referring to? Exactly, yep. My initial thought was, you know, in the back of your head, it's like, all right, I'm moving right here and I want to take out as much infrastructure as I can from my old store. But according to my lease, I still have to leave a decent amount of stuff where the store could easily be made into another laundromat. So in my head, it's like, well, no, like, <laughs> is she going to put another laundromat there when I'm down here? You got to have all know. So. Um, I sold my used equipment to Triad. They came down. They uh, disconnected everything, loaded it all up. We did um, 
all 200G uh, Dexter machines in that store. Uh, and the focus on basically the, the design was, again, I'm looking at this from my customer's point of view. Um, the store basically has a front entrance and a back entrance. So the back has about uh, 20 space, I'm sorry, 25 spaces of parking in the back. Uh, so the back is really the main entrance for our self-service customers. So we have an automatic sliding door uh, for them. So when you're bringing your bundles into the store, you know, the door is opened up. You're not fighting with the door. Um, the front of the store has uh, about four to five parking spots, uh, which is basically uh, only like a 10 minute parking if you're dropping off, picking up, or just getting your clothes inside before you go to the other side of the store. Um, everything is card operated. Uh, all the machines are larger size machines. Uh, the store only has seven 20 pound machines in it versus uh, the former store, which had uh, like 17 20 pound machines. Uh, we have two 90s in there and uh, a bunch of 60 pound machines in there. Uh, How many square feet? Is your store, is it, did you say 3,000 square feet? So, uh, yeah, so this store is uh, 2,900 square feet. Okay. Our old store was uh, 3,400 and change. Okay. Yeah, um, I know you said you'd lost some because of, yeah, with the yeah, new so place. Basic, basically, like, you know, we maximized every single thing that we could on it. So we put storage wherever we could. Um, one thing that we did was uh, we had dry cleaning. Right? We were a dry cleaning drop store. We had a pretty decent volume of, of dry cleaning. And we had one of those you know, spin around dry cleaning racks. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't have space for it. And what we did instead was we have uh, in the ceiling uh, basically a motorized bike lift. So mm -hmm. this bike lift comes down and all of the dry cleaning are now on this basically hanging rod Oh my goodness! Feeling <laughs> and then comes back down when we're getting closed on it. So who uh, came up with that idea? That's very uh, inventive. I uh, I kind of uh, stole it from uh, Danny from Perfect Wash over in Huntington Beach because he has <laughs> he has a small store too and he has high ceilings and I have high ceilings in this new spot and I'm like you know what I like your idea I'm yeah, gonna how I'm can gonna you use, use that this high too. <laughs> uh, so we did that and then basically you know. Again, my fear is, hey, she's going to open a laundromat there. Mm -hmm. So I made it very, very nice. The bathroom is nicer than the bathroom in my own house. <laughs> uh, there's very nice trim accents along the dryers. Um, we have big I-beams um, that are part of the building going across the ceiling. And I didn't cover them up. What I did is kind of did like a floating ceiling and we highlighted those I-beams and put like LED strip light in there. So it's a very modern, clean feel to the place. And we just made it like, you know, I kind of call it the laundry palace. We want to give the customer the best experience they have, whether it's the atmosphere, the function, the flow of it. Cause really what's the flow of that customer? They're coming into the parking lot, they're parking, they're bringing their stuff in. How easy is it from the park? Get in your store, get to a washer that they need, then go to a dryer, and then 
to where I find most people skip out for whatever reason is folding tables. Well, yeah, you can have all these machines, but if there's nowhere for the person to fold their clothes, now you're, you're putting a wrench in the flow and now they're waiting. Was that part of your thought process for putting the 200 GM was you were trying to increase the throughput, getting it, get them in, get them over, get them out as quickly as possible since you were losing yep. that square footage. Yep, exactly. Cause you know, we were losing the square footage. Um, even though our older store had, uh, like it had, four, it had 40 watch from the old store. But like I said, there was almost 20, 20 pound machines, which is way, 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 way too many. Uh, so really the only sacrifice as far as machines go, uh, was in the number of 20 pounders, but the 200 G, um, was really like, so I want to get you in and out as fast as, as possible from the dryer. And I did more dryers than what was needed. You know, if you have 200 G, you can have like almost a one-to-one ratio. I have, I've like doubled that because we do a lot of wash and fold. We do deliveries. Uh, and I didn't want people waiting for a dryer. We have 50 pound reversing dryers in there. Uh, we have uh, 80 pound dryers in there and then uh, standard uh, 30 pound stacks. The revenue that we are doing, even though the store is smaller size physically and less number of washers is greater um, on the self-service end than our old store. Um, and then our drop-off service is, is also uh, gone up as well. And, you know, we do pick up and delivery and, uh, you know, during COVID that first month was scary, but since then, um, the growth of growth of the pickup and delivery side has been, uh, you know, phenomenal, um, uh, over since last, last year with, with COVID, it almost was like, again, a catalyst of, of making people aware that, Hey, you know, I can get food delivered and I can get all this other stuff delivered. And now they're looking into this whole delivery mindset. And now they realize that. Hey, I can have laundry picked up and delivered as well. And I think like I said, this is, uh, I think we're at the tip of the iceberg as far as the home pickup and delivery model goes for laundry. Uh, I think the vast majority of people still are not aware of it. Yeah, I agree. Making people aware of it and the convenience factor of it, because it doesn't matter if a person is rich and the person is poor, if they're young or if they're old, this is the chore that people don't want to do. Um, and it takes a lot of time from their day. And now I think you sell them, hey, you don't have to do laundry anymore. Now you're free to hey, you can go to the beach. You can go get dinner with someone that you haven't seen in a while. You can relax, you know, or if you're uh, in a lower income level. Hey, now I want, instead of me uh, spending, you know, three hours going to a laundromat and coming back, now I can actually have my laundry done and I can go work uh, to provide for my family more. It's just that selling that convenience of it. And I guess the big thing is you're going to get back the next day and it's done the way you want it done. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. <clears throat> So, I'm curious, uh, your old space, has anything moved into it? Has a laundromat come in the space you left? So, so, um, I guess, uh, the dream of my old landlord was to have a, um, 
I want to use the word food court, but that's not really entirely what it is. Okay. It's kind of like a food court. Um, so she's basically making that space into five mini kitchens uh, owned by five or operated by five different restaurant operators mm -hmm. under one brand name. Uh, so they're calling that place International Bites. So basically you would walk in and it's basically a focus on grab and go. Um, okay. So there'll be five different kitchens of like, they'll have like a, uh, a sushi thing in there, an Italian thing in there, uh, Mexican food in there, and like all different It's almost like, of food. like a mall food court. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, only, it's, in, only in 3,400 square feet. Yes. <laughs> yes, which is... Uh, a little tight, I would guess. <laughs> uh, your kitchen size is about 400 square feet. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I wish them luck. Um, I stopped down there a few times. Literally, it's 200 yards down from where my new store is now. Um, so, you know, again, seeing how they're doing construction versus how I did it is always interesting. Um, and, uh, and it's not a laundromat. And it's not that's a laundromat. all there. That's, that's all that really matters. That's the big thing. You know, like, you, know you have that feeling. Like all right. So listen, one of the things that I get in my coaching and even in, you know, when I'm on Facebook groups and CLA forum and stuff like that, one of the questions I see and hear a lot of, um, even in my one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, is, is how tough it is to build a laundromat and whether it's something that someone should uh, take on. And, you know, we could do a whole episode on this, so we don't want to go there, but I'm just curious, do you have a couple quick tips as someone that has now done it? And I know you mentioned that you're even building another one as we speak. What What are some tips and tricks that you have, things that you learned, either things to do that you did right or things you did wrong and you, you learned from that could maybe help our audience? So now let's say I have one full remodel and one new construction. Okay. And Initially, I thought, oh, well, this new construction is basically going to be the same thing as this remodel. I'm just, you know, doing a water connection and uh, maybe changing a little bit of the power supply for the building. Um, you know, it's much more involved. So um, start your water, start your utility connections like the very beginning, because it's going to take a lot longer than uh, what you think. And so what um, you mean by that is the upgrades, right? Because they obviously, the, the white box space has water and electric and maybe gas in it, probably even has a drain somewhere, a little little drain, uh, but you're upgrading them to the infrastructure needs that a commercial laundry laundromat needs. That's what you're talking about is that that's pretty cumbersome and I assume it's pretty expensive. When at least if you're doing a remodel, like your, your costs, let's say are more known. When you're doing a, ground up construction. Um, I, I priced out what I thought the electric upgrade is gonna be and the water upgrade is gonna be. The electric was like $30,000 over what we thought. Now, part of that was due to uh, shortages from COVID and things like that, but still it was really expensive and you had to be able to have a reserve uh, either of capital yourself or a reserve from your lender in order to cover uh, basically those unknown costs. Again, when you're doing any what, a remodel or ground up, look at everything from the customer's point of view um, and also look at it, you're gonna be servicing these machines. Now, 
whether you're getting behind the machine or your service tech is, if it's a pain in the neck for someone to work on it, the service tech isn't going to come to you first. It's going to come to you last. But if you have a, enough space back there where someone can comfortably work, have easy access, have good lighting, these are all things you want to consider and always overdo things. Don't, don't cheap out on it. Do it right the first time so you're not spending more money later on fixing the, the problems that you shouldn't have had in the first place. Just research as much as you can and it's going to take longer than you thought. It's going to be more expensive than you thought uh, and you should account for that in your in your plan. I think that's I think that's fantastic advice. The thing I want to point out to people is you know, we, we talk quite often about existing laundromats and retrofitting them. And a lot of people make the assumption, and sometimes we can, where we can go into an older laundromat and we can utilize the existing bulkheads, for example, and yeah. the drains and the gas lines. And, and sometimes that is true. But there are older laundromats out there where that infrastructure is literally crumbling in your hands, meaning you're going to go into an existing laundromat and pretty much gut everything and put in new bulkheads and put in new gas lines and shutoffs and all those things. And a lot of people assume that because the infrastructure is in that condition of an older laundromat, that there's no value in the infrastructure. And what I hear you saying and what I've learned over my years of doing this is there's still a lot of value just in the access to the space. Having a properly sized gas line, drain line, water line, even if you're pulling all of the service um, legs out of the infrastructure and it's crumbling. I tell people all the time that I see that pretty comfortably at usually a six figure value of taking over an older laundromat, even if you're going to gut it all the way back to the service and start over with all new bulkheads, drain troughs, you know, even if you gonna, you know, if it has a four inch drain and you need to jet it out and pump the pit and, you know, it's still a lot cheaper than putting a pit in. <laughs> if you have to, if you have to change all the shutoffs on your bulkhead, it's still a lot cheaper than building all new lines. Yeah, no, exactly. And like when we did that store in Neptune City, that was about thirty years old, right? That place. And we came in and it's like, oh yeah, we're gonna save. Like we thought, oh, we're gonna save this. No, it literally it crumbles in your hands. Uh, when we took out the old dryers, the curtain wall that was up there literally fell down. And like, oh, well, we were gonna save that, but I guess mm -hmm. not. Um, and you know that uh, in that store, the only thing we really only saved internally was the gas line for the dryers. Um, everything else in the store, the electric was all redone, the plumbing was all redone from the service in. But having that service, you know, coming into the space, you know, is a huge, huge advantage. Like this new store that we just did. Um, the cost for that store was a lot more uh, that second store that we did in Neptune, mainly because we're making connections and there wasn't a laundromat there. We're doing new penetrations to the roof to bring in makeup air and exhaust. All these things add up. You know, you're, again, you're putting a pit in the ground. There's value, even if something is, you know, older and you might not see it. Yeah. And then the flip side of that is because obviously you moved up the road, built a new laundromat in a white box space, and it's still economically made sense. Mm -hmm. And the reason it made sense for you is because your lease was so ridiculous <laughs> that it actually made My sense. Lease is so bad. 
it made it made sense. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in telling people, you know, hey, let's let's as an industry, let's try to stop using absolutes. I'm a big that's something I'm really focused on right now, just in our language and our conversations. The nevers, the always, the you know, well, you can never move a laundromat. Once it's there, it's always there. Well, I mean, that's yeah. that's not accurate. Charles Measley has proven that that's not accurate, and you're I not the so only many one. People tell me well, you can't do that. Saying yeah. my distributor, I was going to say, I'm not going to sell. Like, are you sure you want to? Just like he didn't want me to do it. He yeah. goes, he goes, I don't care. Like, just stay there. You don't take a successful business and then try to move it. He says, No, you stay where you are. You know, I was like, hey, luckily I, I didn't listen. Yes. Um, yes. And and again, you know, whether it was getting into pickup and delivery, whether it was opening um, that store in Neptune, whether it was building this great store that we have now, if I didn't have that really bad lease, I would say, you know, I might just have a mediocre store doing mediocre kind of things instead of now having all the opportunities that I have and having, uh, you know, the blessings that I have from, from those opportunities, um, you know, so even though if you are in a bad spot, you know, God can take that bad spot and he can make it way better than you could ever, ever imagine. Even if you can't see it, you know, it's the possibilities are, are there. You know, like I say, don't think, oh, I can never do this or this. I can never get out of this problem because, you know, you know, what's impossible for you is not impossible for God. And, you know, he'll lead you, he'll lead you through it. Yeah. I had plenty of shortcomings and problems, uh, you know, to get to get to where I am now. But if I, had, if I didn't have those problems, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here. That's right, because we learn from them. They make, our, they make us stronger. And I know people don't like cliches, but the reality is the reason cliches are so cliche is because they're true. Like <laughs> yeah. they're, not, they're not just stuff people say, they're actually true. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Or at least it should. In most cases it does. Some people don't take those lessons and we can't do much with that. Uh, but anyway, well, listen, man, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story with us. Um, your adversity, whether it's from being a newborn baby and having the, the uh, adversity that you encountered back then and having to fight through uh, your debilitating eye disease and all of the obstacles that you've overcome with, with Superstorm Sandy, which is just kind of crazy and a out of control lease and all the things that you've shared with us, the things you've overcome, which is it safe to say that you're in a better, healthy financial position business-wise now than ever before? Because it sounds like you are. Yes. No, now it's, uh, you know, I don't want to say better than whatever I thought or dreamed of, but, you know, from my point right now, uh, we're doing a whole lot better than what we have ever done, uh, you know, in the past. Well, congratulations to you and your team. You've leaned on some experts in the industry. I know you're constantly networking, which I'm a big advocate of talking to people in the industry. Um, you know, you've, you've attributed a hundred percent of your pickup and delivery stacks success to copying me. Um, <laughs> so I want everybody to pay close attention to that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Carla's going to edit that out, but I'm not going to let her. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, no, seriously, you know, the reality is that you, you leaning on your faith and God has gotten you through all the adversity that you've been through. But the reality is that we all know uh, that God expects us to actually get off our butts and do something yeah. too. use the tools, use the gifts, use the resources, help each other, uh, be abundant, have an abundance mindset, share this knowledge and information with each other, which is ultimately all we're about here at Laundromat Millionaire. So I appreciate you coming on, sharing the story with us. And then the last thing I want to point out is your journey started in 2012 um, and very quickly, you know, Sandy happened and derailed everything. And here we are, not even 10 years later, and you're in an amazing financial position and you've done the work. You know, I know you have debt and you have leverage and those things, but you've corrected things that you've, you've, you know, obstacles you've had to overcome like a horrific lease. You've done the hard work to correct those. And I can now see for you, my friend, that the sky is the limit uh, because, you know, you're still pretty young um, and I know you're going to do some amazing more things. So maybe in a few years, Carla and I will have you back on the podcast and we'll get a catch up because I know you're building a third store right now, which I'm super excited about as well. Um, so listen, keep reaching for the stars, man. I appreciate you and, and our friendship. I appreciate all the value that you bring to the laundromat industry, to independent laundromat owners and to the community uh, that we're all trying to build here. Um, so thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Um, for all of our audience there at Laundromat Millionaire Business Podcast, um, we thank you for another fantastic episode. We hope you got a lot out of this uh, from Charles and his team, and we will see you all next time with another episode. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.